Welcome to Plastics Unwrapped, a series supported by Dow, the material science company. I'm your host, Maitreyi Theraman. In this podcast, we're on the hunt for solutions to some of the toughest challenges facing the plastics industry. I'll be joined by my producer, Lisa Desai. Hey, everyone. She's the woman with all the facts and figures we're going to be talking about. We're going to try and have some seriously honest conversations with guests from across sectors and from across the world. So let's together figure out what it'll really take to save the future of our planet. This region will see a lot more investments coming through from the VC side of things, from private capital and more as well. I think from an empowerment perspective, there is a lot of potential that Asia could certainly be maximizing potential on. More nations feeling bolder about taking policy action in the form of EPR laws, for example, but also on building on sustainable solutions as the demand for recycled materials start to grow. Since November 2022, the world has been trying to find common ground to agree on a global plastics treaty, basically a way forward on how we'll deal with our plastic waste. In this last episode of the season, we're putting the spotlight on a part of the world which has 59% of the world's population and more than a billion people joining the middle classes by 2030. But the headlines from Asia Pacific tend to be quite scary that 9 out of the top 20 countries worldwide where waste collection is mismanaged is in Asia Pacific those same 9 countries are among the top 10 for contributing to marine plastic pollution through their rivers but beyond those stats something is changing in Asia Pacific when it comes to accepting its role as the biggest plastic waste polluter in the world So this week Junus Yeo is stepping into Lisa's shoes to give us a reality check. Junus is the executive director of Eco Business, which is a leading media voice on sustainable development and ESG in the region, and with journalistic boots on the ground can really give us a behind the scenes look at what is happening when it comes to policy challenges and innovations in the region. Junus, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, let's kick it off by really looking at, you know, the perceptions that are existent in Asia of the Global Plastic Treaty and all that's been proposed. Where are we at right now? So, I think when it comes to the Global Plastics Treaty, in Asia, I think in my view at least, the treaty itself has been widely seen as positive. The treaty aims to significantly reduce plastic pollution across land, uh, fresh water, marine, etc. And just given that Asia's biodiversity itself is the region's most precious resource, I think from that viewpoint, preservation is vital. And so, anything that can positively change the waste pollution landscape of Asia would be definitely uh, very much welcomed. I think the other angle to this is very much on the investment potential, right? So the The Global Plastics Treaty has many different, I would say, tenets to it, and already seen from the number of downstream investment projects that are focused on recycling and recovery at the moment. I think safe to say this region will see a lot more investments coming through from the VC side of things, from private capital, and more as well. 
I think from an empowerment perspective, there is a lot of potential that Asia could certainly be maximizing potential on. And when it comes to empowerment, what I mean is more nations feeling bolder about taking policy action in the form of EPR laws, for example, but also on building on sustainable solutions as the demand for recycled materials start to grow. I think in that regard as well, one of the things that Asia Pacific has seen immense potential for is the creation of more value from PET with recycled polymer. In 2022, our region's capacity grew from 9 million tons to 18 million tons, and that's a span of 10 years. Even though a lot of that share comes from China, one of the things we have to take note of is that when we're seeing the potential from an opportunity perspective, that's really exciting. And so in that regard, I think the Global Plastics Treaty has a lot of legs for Asia Pacific to take and run with. You've brought up a lot of points there, Jonas, and I want to kind of touch on all of them. You brought up China as well, and that import ban of plastic waste in China really changed the landscape. When it comes to the naming and shaming of countries that are creating plastic waste and plastic pollution and marine pollution, Asia tends to top the list. Do you think that is justified? Is the challenge on the ground as big as we think it is? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one of the things we have to be cognizant of is that the China national sword policy, I think, which is what you're referring to, the ban on imports of plastic. In fact, it was born out of China institutionalizing the Basel Convention. Maybe perhaps for those who don't really know the Basel Convention so well, it really focuses on regulating the transboundary movement of hazardous waste, including hazardous plastic waste, right? So China, having institutionalized something like this, is very much part of them as a member of the convention itself, exercising their rights as a country, also partly due to the fact that they themselves has a lot of plastic to deal with as the country becomes uh, richer in that sense. And one of the things to take note of of such a ban, of course, is that the, you know, it certainly has reduced waste imports into China, but then the trade flows that happened after that increased basically to other Southeast Asian countries as a result. So what we're seeing basically is just movement of waste, you know, exports from rich countries to developing countries. So even though, you know, one can point the finger on China, having done something that has resulted in a lot more waste coming into Southeast Asia, I guess the biggest question to ask is, where's that waste coming from? And perhaps stop that waste from being exported from these very countries to begin with. And one of the things to mention here is that last November, there was a latest law that was announced. And this, in my view, is a milestone for exactly this problem. So the EU struck a deal to stop imports of shipments of waste plastic landing into non-OECD, in other words, the sort of developing poorer countries. And I think this is the welcomed relief. And this actually takes effect from January 1st, 2024. And what we're going to see, of course, is that there are a lot more Asian countries that cannot take in this type of waste. And of course, then we'd have to address the issue back at source again, which probably the better move to take. What's happening on the ground in terms of policies in in these developing countries? I mean, are we seeing more waste management policies come into place? In the EU, for example, we have taxes on incineration and waste management. Are we seeing things like that being talked about, being implemented effectively even? Yeah, that's a really great point. 
I think from an Asian perspective, what we are seeing is a lot more activity on the EPR side, so extended producer responsibility. This has a lot of high profile, you know, I would say headline whenever journalists cover EPR laws in the region is taken in a very positive light because that means that the governments are taking control of the narrative and wanting to put the onus on producer accountability so it holds producers account for the end of life management of their projects. But I think when it comes to Asia, the issue, of course, it's complex and it's multifaceted, right? So in markets like India... It's not a homogenous continent, right? (laughs) Exactly, yes. So in India, for example, they have already announced it some time ago. And Indus producers, importers and brand owners will be required to meet these EPR obligations from 2024, 2025. We're seeing similar things expected of the Philippines when it comes to large institutions, large companies with the target of increasing recovery of plastic products by 80% within the next five years or so. I think this is challenging for a few reasons. Asia is, as you said, is non-homogenous, but I think in Asia in general, law enforcement is also quite weak in many markets. And if you don't have high enough penalty, and if there isn't enough financial incentives to change, uh, to be honest, we're just going to see a lot of lip service being paid. That's what worries, I think, people across the board, whether they're in the industry or whether they're in the policy world. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in countries like Indonesia, in Malaysia, because, for example, Jakarta didn't have waste management except for landfill till 2020. Who would have thought that? Ten and a half million people with only one landfill. Everything goes into these open dumping sites and the numbers look a little bit scary. So in Asia, is regulation the first step or is it education? Which one comes first? Well, (laughs) I honestly think it has to be a multi-pronged approach. And I don't want to sound cliche in that sense because, you know, it's never that hard and fast, right? The rules are never so black and white. So for markets like, say, Malaysia and Indonesia, I think you brought up these two examples. Uh, They are countries that uh, have serious problems on the waste, uh, plastic waste front. I think at the same time as well, the governments have already enacted some rules in that sense, right? So Malaysia, for example, has established its first EPR association. And by doing so, it wants to reach a minimum of a recycling rate of, uh, I think it's 25% of packaging volumes by 2025. That's encouraging. And then for Indonesia, I think they've signed even a a plastic pact where the initiative aims to bring together businesses, governments to work together to achieve that plastic waste reduction targets that they set out to do. I think both you know, sides, you can see that there's involvement of governments wanting to engage the private sector and finding a way to kind of work together on a partnership level to get this going. Uh, But at the same time, in my view, and just maybe perhaps casting the same lens on how we're managing carbon at the same time and many other urgent issues here, there have to be a few things in place. Number one, again, it's penalty. If we don't have a high enough penalty, that is not enough to kind of move them away from that non-compliance issue. Second thing, I think, is the incentives. So when it comes to incentives, how are the producers and other players are able to put their skin in the game and see enough, you know, so that patient capital that they can, I would say, reap from the benefits of investments are short term enough for them to feel that they can really maximize this potential. And then the third thing I think that is really important is how can we engage the informal sector in this whole 
EPR scheme. This is not talked about enough in a market like, say, India and China, which is very large and they've got a large swaths of informal sectors already naturally at play. I think the nice thing about this is the multiple socioeconomic benefits that can come out of a model that engages many different, I would say, livelihoods and many different stakeholders in this entire system. Junas, how much attention is Asia getting in terms of money and innovations? I think it's, in general, is very positive, right? So a recent stat that was covered in eco-business, what was found was that 87%, 87% of all funding for plastic circularity in emerging economies, that was equivalent to about $3.5 billion, went to the region between 2018 to 2022, so a span of about four years. Now, the number is not high, it's $3.5 billion. If you talk about the global context to this, where the funding gap is estimated to be about $1.2 trillion, this is still a drop in the ocean. But I think what is important, of course, is to understand that uh, Southeast Asia does have that potential where private capital can play a really key role in driving some of that innovation uh, to solve the urgent problems that is really urgent, especially in this part of the world. You mentioned investments. Where is this innovation happening? Is it in China? Is that where we have to look to? And what is the exciting bit in all of this? So I think when it comes to innovation for Asia, what we're observing, of course, is that it's very much a downstream in nature. A lot of it is focused around recycling and the reuse of the materials, which of course isn't bad at all. Uh, So an example of that is this use of AI technology for the circular economy. And this is quite a high profile example where Unilever partners with Alibaba Group and Alibaba Group is like the equivalent of Amazon in that sense. So two very large giants wanting to create an AI-enabled recycling system that automatically identifies and sorts plastic packaging. And the aim of it is to speed up this high-grade plastic back into the circular economy and move Chinese companies and consumers towards that waste-free world kind of vision. So I think this is just one example of a Chinese, I would say, collaboration that is tapping on something as advanced as AI. But then I think the other I guess other examples that are really being tested at the moment or being discussed, of course, is to really use a plastic credits system to kind of get members to collect plastic from the oceans and then, you know, exchange this plastic for currency, you know, for their own family needs. I think at the moment there's been a lot of controversy in that field and it hasn't quite seen the positive realization of um, how this could work. And at the same time as well, we're seeing similar criticisms from carbon credits. Uh, and in that sense, plastic and carbon are quite similar in nature. So at this point, this is something that we might have to uh, wait a few more years for it to be really advanced and we can close the loop on how high quality this whole plastic credit scene is. Well, you mentioned uh, the human element and the human aspect of this and and the informal sector has been quite vocal and not feeling involved in the discussions at a global level. How do you get innovation to trickle down to people who are literally living day to day, meal to meal? How do you pitch a circular model in Asia to governments who are not yet convinced that they have to act quickly to say, here's an incentive because here's a whole microeconomy, microcosm of the economy that is dependent on you doing something? No, I think you've tapped on a really challenging question. I'm based in China, right? And on a day-to-day basis, what I, uh, what I see outside my own door is the way waste is being handled across different types of stakeholders, from the UNI to the, the informal collectors and for these small little trucks that run around, you know, trying to collect the waste and, you know, hopefully find value out of that. 
I think the problem, of course, in this whole thing is how can we price it correctly so that by the time these guys collect it, they can realize the value of it very quickly. There was one time, I think there was a study that was done interviewing waste collectors in Hong Kong. And it's interesting, right, for a market like Hong Kong that's quite, you know, it's caught between the developing world and a developed market. The Hong Kong waste collectors actually don't really want to collect plastic simply because the value of it is so much lower, notwithstanding the fact that plastic itself is light. So for them, they're much more incentivized to be collecting cardboard waste rather than plastic. But if we started to price the recycling mechanism more effectively, perhaps, then they would immediately see the benefits of digging the trash and getting the plastic out because that's certainly of value. So at the moment, I think governments around Asia are struggling with exactly that question is how do we price plastic waste correctly so that the informal sector can play its part effectively as we transition ourselves uh, you know, into a circular economy. Junus, thanks for that reality check. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. So Junus has brought up some seriously important points. The question now is how nimble is the industry in order to keep up with this pace of change we're seeing? Let's put that question to Kodak Zhao. He is Senior Business Sustainability Director of the APAC region for Dow. Nice to have you on, Kodak. Great to be here. Joining Kodak is Thomas Ludi, senior partner at Bain and Company, who has been focusing on the chemical, energy, and natural resources sector during his duration as a consultant. He has spent more than twenty years working in the Greater China and Southeast Asia region. Thomas, great to have you on. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We've heard about the scale of the problem, the number of policies that are being implemented and also need to be implemented. But for the industry, you've seen production in plastic double between 2000 and 2019 around the world. Production is going to increase four times more in the next 30 years, while only 14% of plastic waste is being collected globally. Asia is at the center of this headline storm. What is happening in terms of the industry that is of note at this point? Kodak, let's start with you. Thanks, Matty. Yes, I think, uh, Matty, you come to a very important point. Asia, considered a big population, we're dealing with 4.5 billion people are there. And Asia, not only to be the big consumption of plastics, but also is a global production center of the products. It's not only for the Asia's demand, but supporting the global demand. Some of the sad facts is among the 10 most polluted rivers globally, eight of them are in Asia. There's a great challenge, but also opportunities for us to address this plastic pollution issue in Asia. And only when we can make it right in Asia, we can work right for the global. Otherwise, there's no way we can get it resolved. We see there's some good opportunity in there, though, despite all those challenges. We see that there's an increase of this like middle class and people now also willing to use and consume more sustainable products. And also we're seeing that Asia has a very effective waste collecting chain and production sites to make use of the plastic waste. In terms of the effectiveness of the production chain, Asia probably has the lowest cost to convert this plastic waste into something usable. So in that sense, with all those challenges we are talking here, but on the other side, 
We do see Asia is now in the center of this problem, but also in the center of the opportunity to address that problem. Thomas, where are we at? You're looking at the industry from a wider perspective. Is the industry, as Kodak says, moving along and really focusing on Asia as much as it needs to? I would think, yes, it is, right? And I think there's a number of facts that would support that. Just overall, if you look at recycling rates, China already has about a 35, 36% recycling rate. The U.S. currently has a 9% recycling rate, right? I think global recycling rates are somewhere between 15 to 20%. Now, obviously, you know, Asia is an interesting construct. There's no such thing as one Asia. There will be massive differences across different countries. It's probably North Asia being a little bit ahead of the pack. And as you go further into Southeast Asia and South Asia, we'll probably, you know, a little bit further back. But I think you sort of see where the journey is going. And I think what's enabling this is essentially also structural differences. I mean, um, waste collection and waste sortation with lower labor cost, you know, is a very different process here than it would be in the Western world. And so you actually do have fairly decentralized, effective collection systems, starting with the janitor in office buildings, with the mates in households who then at the local level aggregate and further aggregate and eventually go to the sortation center. And that makes it essentially very, very effective because there's value for many of these participants in that chain without driving up the costs of the system. The other thing that's interesting, and I think very, very few people know, if you look at just patents that have been registered for plastics recycling, it's been very quiet globally up to 2015, and then things started to happen. Today, China and Japan have the most patents in the world. China almost has doubled the number of patents in plastic recycling, and China has five times more patents in plastic recycling than Germany. That would suggest that there clearly is, at the research level, at the university level, at the business level, connected with obviously at the societal, municipal level, a lot of things happening to capture more of that plastics waste and, you know, convert it into usable things. That's really interesting. I mean, that kind of number I haven't heard of. So tell us what kind of innovations we're talking about. Is it in digitalization, AI? Is it driven by e-commerce? Where are these patents being registered? What are they about? From what I've seen, it's actually happening across the entire chain. At the moment, mechanical recycling is primarily the methodology used in Asia. And to that extent, obviously, you want to try to process more and more lower quality waste. So there's a lot of innovation around not just being able to collect and reuse the high quality waste, but to go further down into less high quality waste. Then there's a lot of just, you know, the processing systems in order to bring down the processing costs, sortation systems, aggregation systems, right? But actually also quite a, quite a lot is happening at the application level. You know, in Indonesia, there's been innovative pouches and then reusable bags. In Vietnam, there's been various applications for uh, building materials, essentially, but there's still a lot of construction. So you actually see then many new applications being developed at the consumption level to use that recycled material. Following what uh, Thomas had mentioned, really we've seen now, because for the past decades, Asia has been more or less copy-pasting whatever happens in Europe, US, then to Asia. And we used to that to transfer our new product here. But now in this uh, world, and especially in this uh, secularity spaces, we do see there's a great chance that Asia actually now is taking lead in developing these new applications and new technologies on the whole value chain. 
we have the partner like Lavery in China. They are the one of the largest waste collection partner in China, and they have developed their own AI system to segregate different color of bottles and of the plastic waste. For those uh, machines, it used to be more than a couple of millions uh, US dollars. And for them, they own developed that new technology. Now it's cost uh, only about 20% less than what it used to be. So it's not only to boom in the technology, but also significantly increase the affordability of this new technology to the industry. But on the other side, when we talk about design and collection to the reuse of it, actually Asian or many countries have been very creative, like in the e-commerce cushioning, and uh, recently we have been launching with the PNG on this air capsulate of the package, which can reduce the corrugate boxes, remove the cushionings, save more than 40% of material for this e-commerce package. And also we will be working on, on this, how we can even add on PCR, a mechanical recycled content into this air capsulate package to further reduce and enhance the sustainability feature of the product. I mean, scaling these is important. And as you mentioned, the cost is coming down. But I think one of the critical issues that Junus Yeo brought up in our earlier conversation was you're seeing investments rise into Asia. But if you put it into the context of the total amount needed to actually make the economy circular or make plastics circular, it's a drop in the ocean. So how do we close that gap in terms of the innovation funding we need? If you look back in other innovation cycles, right, you can look at solar cells, you can look at wind turbines, you can look at EV batteries. At some stage, it will be offshore wind. I think it's been generally two things that came to play, right? It was either government incentives or subsidies that made these projects attractive. And it was then really companies going in and adding capacity in order to bring the capital down. I think China's been very good at doing this. They did it with the solar panels, right? It was the combination of providing investment incentives and then really having a large industry making massive investments to bring down the costs. And they replicated that across renewable energy and now EV batteries. I think we might just about see this in advanced recycling. We see initial pilots now in China, many of them administered by state-owned enterprises that ended the advanced recycling space. And I think that's something we should monitor, right? Because I would expect they're going to see more and more of these investments. They're going to scale up. And I would expect then the um, economics to improve significantly and then it becomes scalable. Kodak? I think it's about cost and value. So let's talk about cost first, because cost is relevant to the whole system. And then some of those can be covered as an incentive or subsidies like EPR. Actually, like in country in Asia, like India, they will launch the APR mandate starting January 1st, 2025. And then we have countries like uh, Vietnam or Indonesia also in the process to have their own APR policy assistance. And China government is also very closely moving to and look into the, what's the policy to be there to achieve is uh, 2030 and 2060 carbon neutral and circularity goals there. So APR policy will be a strong push to subsidize some of the extra costs and increase the scale in this area. So that's the cost part. And then another part is on the value. 90% of APEC consumers are actually willing to pay premium for the standard product compared to Europe, that's 74%, and compared to US, which is 71%. 
So actually, you can see there's a waiting list for the customer here and want to take action for that. I think that's the nice thing about Asia, right? The speed of Asia has normally been much, much faster than the speed of the Western world. And we've seen that, right, when a government gets behind it, and particularly China, but I think it goes beyond China, it would probably apply for Southeast Asia or for some of the North Asian companies as well. When the government gets behind it, then things happen very, very quickly. And clearly that's the case in China. And we've seen that already through the five-year plans, mechanical recycling got accelerated and we expect that's going to be happening the same on advanced recycling. So I would say it is still a bit early days. I think um, probably Asian governments lag, but I would expect that they can catch up very, very quickly. If we have production that is set to rise four times in the next 30 years, but are targeting 25 to 40 percent reduction in plastic waste by 2030, that's about 8 million metric tons, what's floating around in our oceans. We're going to need these low-income countries to cut their plastic waste from 6 percent right now to 60 percent. How are we going to convince them to do that? Yeah, let me maybe try to answer this first and then hand it over to Thomas. So I think that's a very practical question. When we address that, we should come to where we start. If I can start to ask another question will be, why we need these plastics? It really enables the product to safely transport from point A to point B. So that's actually the biggest waste we have is from product breakage and leakage. So we need packs to protect that. Second, shelf life. With a package, with a barrier, now with a food, used to be resolved storage for one, one day, two days, now can pass the value chain for the two weeks, two months, and significantly increase the shelf life and reduce food waste. For developed countries, has gone through that pattern. So if we see the average plastic consumption for packaging as a number we are referring to, somewhere about 2020, like for Japan, Korea, it's about 25 to 28 kg per person. China is roughly about 20. If you look at other countries, South Asia is under 7 or 8 kgs. It's actually not fair to ask for those countries still at developing say, hey, you should stop using plastic. I think it's right because also we have the right say, now we improve our lifestyles. Now we consume more product. Now we want to reduce product waste, food waste. Then we need these packages. So I think the plastic consumption will increase because that's a pattern from developed countries to the developed countries. Imagine if we don't use plastics, if we use paper, easily we will get more than three times in the quantity of weight, not mentioning about metal, glass, all those going to significantly increase. So before we ask if we remove plastics from the whole picture, then the next question, what will be the alternative? Will that alternative be truly better than plastic in terms of total cost to the environment? Thomas, where do you come in at? Kodak is from a plastic manufacturer. We are talking plastics. It's completely understandable. Where are you coming in at when you look at the industry and the argument to reduce production? Look, I would categorize plastics into essential and non-essential plastics. I think Kodak touched upon the essential use of plastics quite a bit, and he mentioned many examples. I think at the same time, we have to recognize that many plastics applications are used in non-essential ways. To give you an example, many offices 
still have these tiny, small water bottles where you could essentially have all the dispensers. So I think there are ways where consumers just need to change their behavior to produce less of the non-essential use of plastics to make sure that we can safeguard where plastics being needed. I think similarly, and I think Kodak touched upon this, you know, now we're going to electric vehicles, we're going to lightweighting, and plastics has actually decarbonization advantages over metal because it leads to a better energy efficiency. So I think we need to look at it from an integrated perspective. But I think in addition to that, I would just like to point out one thing. It's always been said Asia pollutes the oceans. And yes, that's right. It used to be China up until 2018 when they stopped importation of waste. And then that pollution from China went back quite a bit. I think nowadays it's the Philippines and Malaysia as the world's largest ocean polluting countries. Well, these are not the largest consumers of plastics. So it's essentially happening here. They get the imports of plastics waste often from the Western world, not only, but often from the Western world. And because of lack of many of the things that Kodak mentioned, then the plastics ends up in the ocean. And at the same time, we see some of the Western countries having recycling rates of less than 10%. So I think we need to think about this a bit more globally, right? I think there's actually a lot of opportunity to recycle the waste at source in the Western world, get these recycling rates up to at least the current world average or even higher. So here's my final question to both of you. What are some ideas that you've had with your combined 50 years in the business of what can be done right now to close this gap that everyone is debating between the production levels rising and our ability to deal with the end use and the waste being generated? Kodak, I'm going to give it to you first. Okay, actually, I'm certain Thomas, you have more years than I do, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's let's age Thomas. <laughs> no, look, let me share two ideas, right? And one is obvious, one is maybe a little bit out there. We talked earlier about e-commerce being so important. And it is indeed, right? And again, I think that's something where we saw Asia leapfrog, that whole gig economy really taking off and e-commerce being um, very important. And, you know, plastics is still actually a preferred material for all of the packages there. If you just sort of look what's happening, you know, in other industries, it only makes sense to actually start putting something in place where the curry gets to a household once or twice a day anyway, right? So as you bring the new parcel, it would be very easy to collect the plastics material, the packaging material from the previous parcel and essentially having almost a closed loop system, right? So I would expect some of these things will just naturally evolve as there will be more demand for recycled material. And actually, if you think about it, this could be a quite a high quality plastics material, particularly if you have no pigments, if it's transparent, if you have a certain packaging standard, you could essentially design relatively easily an almost closed loop system where you get high quality plastics waste back that you could use for mechanical recycling and certainly also for advanced recycling. The more sort of out there idea, and that may take a little bit more years, but Look, we've seen it in industrial manufacturing. We've already seen these robots that look like dogs that walk around the plant and do essentially visual inspection. So they have all sorts of sensors, heat sensors, cameras, etc., and have sort of this automated thing. 
in Asia, plastics, you know, has one of two things. One is incineration or it's landfills. There's still a lot of plastics that goes into landfills. And there is essentially a lot of quality waste out there, but it's dangerous to go in there and start picking it. So I could see a system where you have these robots going out there and being able to recognize what is plastics, what are plastics, picking it out and then associated. You have an automated sorting facility and you could potentially get relatively low cost, large volumes of waste that you can further process, which currently is not being processed. Many things will need to happen. Regulations need to be in place and obviously innovation needs to happen. But your question earlier, right, there is a gap between the availability of the recycled and the demand for plastic. I do believe there are many ways to closing that gap. Um, Some immediately, like the e-commerce logistics one, and some will take more time. Kodak, final words yours. It's really about, again, value and cost. And also we talked about how the preference from consumers. So for this middle class or relatively higher income people, I think we need to motivate them and also educate them to buy and choose the sustainable product. So that's for the value side. Cost. So cost is where how with the value increased, then we talk about this lower income people, then we can drive more demand and then encourage these people to collect plastic waste in a massive way to improve their own income as well to lower the cost on this plastic waste collection and whole systems. And also how we build those collection systems, AR can really play a significant role here. Because AR in general, it can be more tolerant to absorb different type of waste or multi-polymer waste. Actually, we talked with some Chinese government officers said, there's are, imagine my tree, more than 1 billion metric ton of plus waste landfilled in China. So those is not only for plus waste. If advanced research can work, this can be the feedstocks and this can help to use less fossil or crude oils, but turn those buried as rich as a treasure, as a waste, into resources. So for the AR now have technology, but the efficiency, especially cost, is something of the key hurdle we need to overcome. Gentlemen, thank you both very much. It's been insightful as a conversation to understand how Asia can help us really leapfrog this technology and the issues that we're currently dealing with into the future. Thank you both so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's a wrap on this season of Plastics Unwrapped. The conversations I've had have taught me that there are no silver bullets when it comes to solving for our plastic waste problem. But that if we start thinking about a product's entire life cycle from the design stage, if we collaborate and break out of our siloed thinking and disrupt and scale innovation, we may just have a little hope for our future. Thanks for sticking with us to the end as we hunt for solutions to make plastics truly circular. This podcast is supported by Dow, the material science company. Don't forget to share the show if you enjoyed it. Do leave us a comment or a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.